Welcome to the Wolf Admin Podcast. If you know me, you know how passionate I am about helping my patients solve their dry eye problems. So today it was my great pleasure to discuss dry eye with one. So today it was my great pleasure to discuss dry eye with the one and only Dr. Scott Shack. We discussed dues two, the dream study, future treatments of dry eye, and interestingly, adoption. I think the most practical portion of our conversation was a simple strategy to start with dry eye diagnosis and management in our practice with two simple things, fluorescein strip and eyelid evaluations. Scott is also the founder of the Oculus Surface Academy, and he does clinically relevant workshops to provide optometric physicians with tools to immediately use in their practice to benefit their patients with dry eye. Please enjoy our conversation, and as always, if you want to get the most current episodes, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and give us a five-star review. But first, please support those who support us. Today's show is sponsored by iCode Education. At iCode Education, we create and host high-quality, relevant, COPE-approved online optometric CE. We offer practice management courses from billing and coding, fee assessment, and chart auditing to clinical courses that focus on topics ranging from the anterior segment to the posterior segment to myopia control and neurological disease. Additionally, we partner with associations to help them provide their members and non-members with online continuing education at their own pace, on their own schedule. This allows our associations to generate non-dues revenue and provide a valuable service for their members who are allowed to obtain hours from distance learning entities. Check us out at iCodeEducation.com. That's E-Y-E-C-O-D-E Education.com. One more time, E-Y-E-C-O-D-E Education.com. Yeah, actually, I, I tell this story all the time. Um, so I was a three-diopter spherical myope, and this was about 2011 or 12. And I went down to uh, Newport Beach to a LASIK surgeon down there, Tom Tuma, at an envision practice. And um, he put me on three different aberrometers. And he said, you have higher order aberrations. Uh, that doesn't make a lot of sense for a spherical myo, but I didn't think too much about it. So he put me on Lodomax for a couple of weeks and I went back and my aberrations were gone. And I had an Izon aberrometer and I was prescribing lenses based on aberrations that we were measuring. And patients seem to like it, but it didn't always work. But that was my big epiphany that tear film was affecting vision. I had not really equated that in the past. It's something that I neglected or forgot, that the tear film being the first thing that light hits when it enters the eye. If you have an irregular tear film breakup time, you can get a shift of about 1.2 diopters across the surface of the eye. And that's when you get trefoil spheric aberration and coma. And that's what was causing my aberration. So once I started thinking of dry eye disease as being a vision disease, it really went from least to most important disease state in my practice. So that is what really got me going. I just found a way to look for it on every patient routinely without slowing down. And that built up the medical side of my practice, the dry side of my practice, and really ultimately gave my patients better vision. You know, I think what's, when I talk to people about dry eye in particular, it's always, it always seems to be a, an epiphany like that. I mean, mine certainly was. And, um, and now it's almost like when I hear a, a, a patient complaining of fluctuating vision, whether it's with their contact lenses or their glasses or whatever, I mean, the first thing I'm thinking is dry eye. I mean, it's easy to rule out the obvious stuff like uh, a toric lens that isn't stable. Or, um, but have you found, you know, it seems to me that, that when that's the case, it's almost really challenging to still uh, have these conversations with patients because what winds up happening is I still think that it's so undertreated. Uh, you know, I, I think there's so many people that just sort, sort of throw artificial tears at dry eye. And, and I, I can see how that's an easy fix in a lot of cases. If you, if you don't understand the medical aspects of it or you think that it's not worth your time to proceed with the medical aspects of it, then it can be easy if a patient's complaining of uh, fluctuating vision in a toric lens to blame it on the lens or to just throw an artificial tear at it. In these last seven years, have you, have you felt like that's gotten easier to explain because the public is more aware of ocular surface issues, or are you just getting better at explaining that? What, what do you think? 
Well, I think it's a combination. <clears throat> um, but I just think I'm so comfortable with that. You know, it's uh, years ago I had to write about, you know, how do you drive compliance in a quote-unquote asymptomatic dry eye patient? And, uh, you know, the first thing I think is to make sure they are asymptomatic. And so I like a validated questionnaire. And so I use a speed questionnaire. You can use DQ5. I like that one too. Um, <clears throat> but screen everybody. And if in my practice, if you score six or higher, I think you're symptomatic enough, you're going to listen to what I have to say. But when we talk about, you know, when I first started doing this, I was finding a lot of dry eye. But if I asked patients, are your eyes dry? They would answer no. And so what I did way back then, you know, you see this tear film that's waxy, it breaks up immediately or within a few seconds. And I thought, how can I get you to understand? So that's when I started having patients, you know, put on their correction, cover one eye, look at an acuity chart, blink a couple times and hold your blank for as long as you can and tell me what happens to that image. And they would see that image degrade within seconds. And I would instruct them to blink and they would say it would get clear. And that really hit home for a lot of patients who, who don't feel dry, but they would see how their vision was falling apart because, you know, I would tell them, you have to, that new pair of glasses we're getting for you, if you don't blink every three seconds, you're not going to get the kind of vision you want. Yeah. And, and your HDTV, your retina display. And I would tell them, you know, if, you, if you're sitting at a computer all day and your tear film falls apart in three seconds, you're blinking every 10 or 12, you're going to end up with dead cells on the surface of the eye in the form of corneal staining. And that also got patients to really understand, okay, I see I have a problem here. But, but showing them their tear film degrade, I don't do that so much anymore because I don't feel like I need to. Yeah. But that really hit home. Some patients were just dumbfounded. They, they had no idea. Yeah. Uh, and so now, you know, it's more of a discussion about this, this, your dry is manifesting in this way. And we've all, we've all had it happen behind the phoropter, right? Yep. You know, let me blink, hang on, it's blurry, let me blink. And, uh, you know, that's when we, you know, big red flag. That's easy to explain to a patient. That's because your tear phone's not lasting, your eyes are dry. Do you think that, uh, that to me, it seems like, you know, almost every single patient I see now, you know, they'll, they'll report something like that. Like, well, let me blink a couple of times or, and, and it's like, I, it's like, I can't not see ocular surface issues and dry eye issues and then hear them in their complaint. So it seems to me that you were really good about um, kind of taking that aspect of showing them how it's impacting their vision and how that, that is a symptom, even though they may not feel dry or scratchy or gritty or burnt. Um, now, how's that, now that you've incorporated technology in your practice, how has that discussion changed throughout your screening process? Well, to start, you know, you almost always have to score a six or five, you know, somewhere in that neighborhood on a speed to, to get me to pay attention to your dry eye. And, you know, if I see something overt and their speed score is zero or one or two, that's a different discussion. But for the most part, they, I find that if they have that level of symptoms that they know they have something going on, but, but the discussion about the vision aspect um, has become, I think, just a lot easier. You know, in the contact lens world, for example, patients whose who's, uh, wearing time has been diminished. And, you know, in the past, I used to really just be a big brand chaser. And, and you know, let's, let's try another lens, let's try another brand, another modality. And I, now I've really become fix the eye first, and that's saved me so much headaches uh, with my contact lens fits. And also, um, I think, I hope, reduced my dropout rates. But when you're looking at these newer lenses, you know, for example, the new Toric Progressive, if, if you don't have a good tear film, I don't think you're going to succeed. A multifocal on a lot of our <clears throat> post, um, you know, middle-aged patients uh, where the tear film is likely to be somewhat diminished, uh, you've got to make sure that that tear film is adequate or you're doomed to failure. How do you think, um, so if, if I come back to kind of explore this other idea of what is your sense of the, you know, the OD population that is taking this more seriously? I mean, you, you probably have a pulse on this more than anybody. 
um, especially with social media. Do you get the sense, you know, I was talking to Mick Kling and, um, you know, last month or a couple months ago and, and, you know, he, he still thinks that, you know, when you think about people that are paying attention to, you know, all these different aspects of their profession or of their practice, that you still have this 80-20 rule. Do you think we're making any headway in, in getting more people to think about, okay, we got this wonderful new lens, a multifocal toric or a, you know, a synergized progressive or you know, what other, other lens we have available. But if you're not going to fix the tier film first, you're just going to be spinning your wheels. What do you think the, the kind of movement is on that? I, I do think there's some. You know, I'm seeing more and more people um, – you know, developing a, some sort of algorithm within their practice where they're screening more routinely. I'm seeing more interest working, you know, with industry getting into the game, um, with Shire's direct to consumer. Um, I, my, I love, uh, I love that they had. And, um, now that we see, uh, Johnson and Johnson, um, getting to my bony or they have my bony, my bony gland expression, but now Alcon also. With the device and site science, I think we're going to see much more direct to consumer. At least I hope we do, uh, because I'll tell you that Shire campaigns are drawing a lot of patients into our practices. So I think, you know, I don't. I I've been out of school a while, and I I think I don't know how I could live how I want to live if I didn't have strong medical practice. And and the thing of it is, is that. You don't have to be what you know, quote unquote, aggressive. You simply have to practice to your training ability and appropriately. We're, like you said, we're dealing with a disease state which is very much still underdiagnosed and therefore undertreated. So that represents opportunity. You know, you've got ophthalmology with, with the residencies are flat, and I think the number is something like ten thousand Americans are turning sixty-five every day. So what does that mean? More more injections, more cataract surgeries. They don't have time for dry eye. Right. How do they have time to do it? So that's where I think it falls to us. But again, that's opportunity. You know, you can, you know, in my, to me, I, I like the variety of patients that I see. I don't have days where I have equal number of medical follow-ups to refractions, and I'm great with that. Uh, I personally think I'd go a little crazy just refracting all day. But I don't know how you financially survive if you're not embracing medical model. I, I don't think I could. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I, there's no way that I could practice. Um, I mean, even just, uh, you know, from a sanity standpoint, I couldn't practice, uh, you know, seeing just quote unquote routine patients all day long. <clears throat> but, you know, right. it's interesting that once you kind of get on, um, you know, once you start looking for things, uh, you just can't ignore them anymore. I mean, that's the real kind of eye opener is that if, you know, even when you have those patients that are minimally symptomatic, you know, you're talking about a speed score of six or of less than six. And, um, and then you see, you know, you're looking at their, their eyelids because you're just naturally drawn to that because it's part of your normal process and you just can't ignore them. And so, uh, so I, I think from that standpoint, it would be really challenging to practice without the medical model. But it, it actually, um, patients really want you to practice that way. I mean, I think there's this, this fear that if I, if I have a patient come back for a follow-up, whatever that follow-up is for, you know, I'm used to seeing a patient once a year and the patients are used to seeing me once a year. And I'm afraid that they're going to um, think I'm trying to do something that, uh, that shouldn't be done if I see them more often than that. And I mean, first, I think you reap what you sow. Uh, so if that's what you've bred over time, then that's what you're going to get. And second, you know, if, if, if those patients don't want to come back, they don't have to come back. Uh, you can only do what you can do with them. And so I think the last part of that is that, you know, about your, your point about the medical model is that, um, yeah, I mean, it, it is, uh, it is good for the patients and, and like, I can't know, I don't know who says this, I hear everybody say it, but if it's good for the patients, it winds up being good for the practice. And, that's what we've seen as well is we take better care of our patients. They expect more from us and they're willing to, um, to pay more for that. And so, um, so I, I, I do think that um, I'm not sure how you could, uh, even from a financial standpoint, how you would feel um, in this day and age if, if you weren't embracing at least, at least some component of what you enjoy um, 
from the medical standpoint. Yeah, definitely. You know, I, I like you said, I, the keyword enjoy. I, I like the challenge of it. Uh, I like doing that external. My, my mindset when a patient comes into me, and this may be naive, but when you come in to see me for a comprehensive eye exam, I'm not really thinking about what your what insurance are we billing here? Is this Medicare or is this vision care? To me, a, a comprehensive is a comprehensive, and we could spend hours talking about billing and coding, which you know a lot about, and I don't know that much about, but I, I sort of see this as presenting as an eye physical for the most part, and you may triage a lot of it till later uh, as necessary. Uh, but I try to make a decision on the very first day they come in whether or not we're going to start some sort of therapy in their dry eye. And I try to get something going that day. And I may have, you know, we've talked before. When I when I first put this into place, I ended up within six months tripling my medical follow-ups, but keeping my revenue per patient the same. So I was able to be busier without adversely affecting that red revenue per patient by just getting something started. That's what I lecture on a lot of time. You know, streamlining is what you do. Uh, let's measure a couple parameters and get you started on something. And, and the reason that I don't bring you back for a dry eye workup before I do anything is I, I tell you, I know how hard it is for me to go to a doctor or to go to some sort of appointment, to go to the DMV, whatever it might be. It's, it's, so hard to find any free time. So I, I try to be very respectful of the patient's time. Um, let's, if we can save a visit and get you started on something right now, come back in two, three weeks, and then we'll measure what we need to measure because there won't be huge changes in anything at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, but at least we get them started. And I think that ties the patient in. They probably are happy they've got something, whether it be tears, nutraceuticals, prescription, whatever it might be. I try to get them going on something. Uh, just to, to make it simpler. And I think patients probably like that too. I totally agree with you. I, I think there's a lot of people that will advocate for, for patients to come back. You know, you, you do a, a sort of quick screener and then, you know, you see that this is a problem. I want you, I want, I want you to come back to, um, to thoroughly evaluate it. And, and I, I, I think in a really busy practice, that may be the way you want to do it. Um, but man, I, I think... I, I couldn't agree more. I, I think starting with some type of, of therapy, um, it, it does two things. I think one, it can, it can check off the box of the really simple stuff. So like if you're talking about prior authorizations for let's say Restasis or Zydra, um, and the question is, have you tried anything before? What have you tried before? You, check out, you, can, you get to check off that box right away because you've tried something once you get to that point of prescribing. Um, and, and then also I think from a, from a standpoint of my gland dysfunction, you know, when somebody goes, you know, if, if you're not starting a patient, at least on warm compresses, and I could, I would argue warm compresses and some sort of lid hygiene as well, because of the biofilms I think are, are creating my gland dysfunction, uh, as much as, um, as just the original obstruction from lack of blinking. But we can explore that if you'd like to. But um, I think bottom line is if, if you're not at least starting a patient on that, when they come back, if they're, gonna, if, if they're intuitive enough, they're going to Google stuff, they're going to look around and see what, what do I do for my bovine gland dysfunction or blephritis. And the first thing that's going to come up is Mayo Clinic or you know, UCLA. And they're going to say warm compresses. That's the first thing, right? And if now I'm recommending right. treatments for that that are not just warm compresses, the patient's like, well, why didn't you try that? You know, and, and so you're, you're already starting with the easy stuff. Um, and then you get that out of the way and then you can say, okay, well, were they adherent to the treatment or um, was it enough treatment? We can at least have a better baseline from where we're starting from to jump off. What do you think about that? Yeah, no, I agree. Because, you know, it really, you measure a couple parameters, right? You've got symptoms from your questionnaire that takes place before you see the patient. It doesn't, it takes, we did this in a, in a, uh, Rusty Simmons practice in Little Rock, Arkansas. We had somebody take a speed and score a speed. It took less than 30 seconds to do the entire thing. Yep. Take it and score it. And because yep. I modify, I take off the questions on the top. And so we knew what was going on. That's our symptom. Then what are we going to do for objective information? Well, if you want to make it simple, use a fluorescent strip. 
and take a look, give it 90 seconds, 120 seconds. So keep put in the die, keep moving through the exam. One to two minutes later, after you've reviewed images or refract, take a look at the slit lamp, see whether or not you've got staining. Uh, you could transilluminate the lids and push on the mybum. That would take, boy, less than 30 seconds to do both of those things, too. Yeah. And then you know, do I need to write a prescription or do I need to recommend? Um, you know, we've got all three. We've got tear care, liver flow, and, and uh, eye locks in my practice. Do we need to recommend that? And what I'll do is very briefly explain your symptomatic. This is the problem. I check boxes on a piece of paper. And this is what's wrong with you. And this is what we're going to do about it. And I put it in a folder. My staff sits down and explains this to the patient. And away you go. And I'm on to the next patient. So delegating this to staff, using the paperwork, sending them home with something that they can read. Oh, I, oh, I have my bony gland dysfunction. Here's my recommendation. I got to do nutraceuticals. I got to do compresses with hygiene. And I may need to do this other procedure if this is an inadequate, for example. Yeah. But But it takes so little time if you take the time to put a system in place and it's not complicated. Um, I, you know, my own personality, I, that's what, what I came up with it. If it wasn't really easy, I wouldn't do it. Yeah. It had to, I wouldn't have the time to do it. I want to make the time. And, um, it just, it flows for me really simply. And I think personally, anyone can do it. A, a floor scene strip and a symptom questionnaire. Yeah. And, and there you go. Well, I think that's where people yeah. get, um, Sorry, sorry to interrupt, but I think that's where people get lost is that, you know, you go to a lecture and I'm guilty of it too. When I speak about dry eyes that, you know, I, in my mind, you get so nuanced because once you get better at, at things, you can say, okay, well, if I add this little piece or that this little test, I can be a little more surgical with my treatments. Um, but I can, right. like, like really all you need is staining. I think you should have some form of staining. You should have some form of evaluation of the meibomian gland function. And if you can do structure, great. But like you said, if it's just translumination, then all the better. Uh, and if you can do some form of mybography, even better. But, um, but if you do those two things and you listen to what the patient's telling you in the form of a symptom score, you ought to be able to know pretty easily what, um, what pathway you're gonna, uh, you're gonna, that patient is most likely to be um, benefited by. So yeah. Yeah, I mean, a lot of doctors get hung up on how to start. I think that's, they see obstacles rather than opportunities. Yeah. Yeah, they think it's going to take too long. And um, yeah, the, the interesting part that you and I have talked about with the fluorescing strip um, last time is that the, the mistake that people commonly make is that they put the fluorescing strip in and then look too quickly. Correct. Um, right. Do you uh, do you just use fluorescein now, or do you also like lysamine green, or or just fluorescein by itself? Well, I'll, I'll oftentimes put them in together. I'll put them right on top of each other and uh, wet the strip and put them in at the same time. And then in my own practice, what I'll usually do, I we do a lot of imaging, so we'll review. I use the eye wellness module and then Optos images. I'll review that and then kind of come back and take a, take a look. You know, we're not talking about the weather for two minutes, but we keep moving through the exam. Right. And then I take a look and take a look at tear film breakup time, take a look for staining at that point. So, okay. So um, let, let me try to break down to kind of dig into your mind. At first, if I'm starting out with this, um, we do some sort of evaluation of my bobine glands, fluorescein staining. What is going to uh, indicate to me, if I'm Scott Schachter, what's going to indicate to me that this patient um, needs just warm compresses and, and um, maybe some other lid hygiene versus this patient's going to need Zydra and restasis or restasis or a steroid. Can I, can I know that with those two tests? If I'm Scott Schachter, can I know which one I'm going to use for that patient and what treatment? Well, you know what? That's, that's what really kind of got me started in this whole world. I was not uh, at all seeking to become any sort of speaker at all. You know, I just, I didn't want to do it. It wasn't where it wasn't the genesis of why I got into dry eye. Uh, it was me recognizing, wow, I, I've been missing something for all these years and, and I can help you. Yep. And there's a lot of other doctors around who will ignore it, but I'll help you. I'll be better. I'll, I'll be different and better and I'll help you and I'll get paid to do it. So it's great. So, so what I did, how I got noticed was 
that I originally followed the uh, dues report, the dry workshop from around 2007. Mm -hmm. So I looked at categories, you know, it's levels one through four. Level one would be some mild conjunctival staining and mildly symptomatic. And that patient got nutraceuticals, tears, et cetera. A level two patient was when they demonstrated corneal staining. And then that level two patient is where the dry workshop, this international group of experts, says that patient should get restasis back in 2000, whatever it was, um, when that first when that first came out. So I started following expert recommendations. And when I did that, my restasis numbers really kind of took off and also got the attention of Allergan who came to visit me and, and a friend of mine, Mark Risher, I said, hey, I want you to share this with everybody. And I said, no, not, not a chance. But I finally relented. And um, and now he's responsible for me sponsoring as much as I do for better or careful what you wish for, I think. <laughs> That's right. That's right. But, but, so I started following those guidelines. If you had symptoms and you had corneal staining and you had already gone through the tears process and you really hadn't gone anywhere, well, then you get a prescription. Right. And that's still relatively true today. You know, the new TFOS dues came out in 2017 and, you know, 150 ODs, MDs, and PhDs spent all those years evaluating, three years evaluating the last 10 years of research and came up with a new uh, categorization and treatment recommendation. So what you do now is stepwise approach, similar. You know, they're sort of saying no matter where you are, start with step one. But I, you know, if you're, if you look pretty bad, we're not going to, Right. Start simple. We're going to get it a little more complicated right away. But if you're symptomatic and you demonstrate a fair amount of corneal staining, I, I'm usually writing a prescription for that patient at that point. Yeah. Uh, now the biggest, the biggest update to me from 20, 2007 to 2017 was it used to be is this evaporative or aqueous insufficient? Right. And now it's in continuum. We recognize there's a lot of overlap and. I think the key to understand is that inflammation overrides both types. If you have MGD, it doesn't mean there's no inflammation present in studies to show that. So if I measure, and you don't have to, but if I measure MMP9s and you're positive, and I evacuate my, your meibomian glands with whatever technology, and then I check you again, you're likely still positive. Right. So I've seen that. And I'm, I can measure it with MMP9s, which tell most of the story, but not all the story about inflammation. <clears throat> but um, in the absence of that, follow the dry workshop recommendations. And then they're not as gospel exactly, but you can do use that as a framework. And as you get, gather experience in your practice, you can sort of fine tune it. But but really, symptoms and corneal staining and failed tears and nutraceuticals and wet hygiene, you need to write a prescription at that point. Yeah. Yeah. I think what's, what's interesting is you're, you're talking about MMP nines and, and you and I had a discussion also um, last time. Well, probably it was last fall um, about the idea that MMP nines can allow you to miss one arm of inflammation. So for me, what I, what I try to do is we'll measure um, MMP nines, but we also are looking for additional signs of staining, which would be another driver of, or another sign of inflammation, right? Whether it's conjunctival staining or corneal staining. One of the common things I think people are missing is the fact that if you have any corneal staining, like, you, like I know you said this already, but I want to make it clear because I think the listeners, it's helpful at this point. Um, based on dues too, if you have any corneal staining and you've already been doing at least something for, for dry eye, you, you're in, in category two. And, and, and that right. does warrant Zydra or Restasis at that point. Um, and, and I think that that's uh, corneal staining is so common that it's hard, I think, for, I mean, if you're looking for it, that um, anybody would be a, a significant writer of prescriptions if, um, if you're looking for corneal staining and, and thinking through the, the of dues too. Right. Is that a common misunderstanding you see with people? I think, I think doctors are hesitant, and there are certainly challenges to writing prescriptions. We see escalating deductibles. We see uh, prior authorizations piling up. Uh, insurance companies don't make it easy for us, or for us to get our patients onto these prescriptions. Some are easier than others. Uh, it, when you've got a $5,000 deductible, uh, that's a, t a different discussion. You know, and I, when I see a patient, I do know 
their medical insurance and their deductible so we can have an educated conversation about, you know, here's what's, what's going on. And it's tough to sustain. If you, if you have that huge deductible, uh, it's difficult to get you onto that. It's going to cost you a lot of money. So then how, um, so first of all, I think that's absolutely true. I, I think the insurance companies have figured out that if we prior authorization, if we prior off medications, specifically chronic medications like Restasis and Zydra and also um, glaucoma medications as well kind of fall into that category. There are very few, it seems, or there, or there might be, might be a, to say it another way, there are a significant number of offices that don't write and they're not in the habit of writing a lot of prescriptions. So they don't have the mechanisms in place to, to work through prior authorizations. But when you do it a lot, um, you know, you have, you have key, uh, key team members that can, that can know this is what we have to put based on, you know, our charting and our documentation. And that goes into those prior auths and they become super simple. Um, have you found that that's helpful to offload to a team member? Definitely. You know, we, when we prescribe, we go through and answer the questions. Did we try tears already? For example, they failed other therapies and that's minimized them. They still occur. Yep. Uh, we also utilize, uh, you know, um, Shire now Takeda, soon to be Novartis has, uh, something called ask Iris where they have resources to help your patients kind of maneuver through and also help practices uh, deal with prior authorizations um, a little bit better. So uh, the pharmaceutical companies that clearly know that there's, there's challenges there and they're doing what they can within, uh, within limits to really help us. And, and it's not perfect, but, but it's helpful. Yeah. What about, um, have you had any experience with Imprimis's Clarity C? Filling some of those gaps uh, with? I haven't. Have you? Say that again. I have not. Have you? Yes, I have. So, so um, if you if you're having so just in general, one of the things I always think about is um, if I have a patient that they're getting denied on restasis or that it's a, it's a significantly high um, deductible um, and, or or Zydra, and I'm and I'm thinking that patient probably can do um, well on either of them. Um, Clarity C from Impermis is uh, 50 bucks a month, um, and it's in a it's in a um, preservative-free bottle, just like Restasis Multidose is. The concentration is a little different. It's um, it's what is it? One percent. It's uh, what is Restasis is point point oh point oh five point oh five. I think it's 0.05. Yeah, so it's 0.1%. Uh, cyclosporin. So it's a little higher concentration, um, but it's in um, chondroitin sulfate and, uh, and, and it's 50 bucks a month. So you can, so that's been a really significant um, uh, access improvement for my patients when they're have really high deductibles uh, that, that makes it way more palatable. Uh, so that's um, yeah, it's definitely worth your time. The other thing that I always think about is you know, I, I, I still use quite a few topical steroids and I always wonder why Bausch & Loam or another company doesn't just seek approval for topical steroids like Alotomax um, with, for, for dry indication. What's your thoughts on that? Well, I think there's, there are some companies trying to do just that. Tala, uh, uh, for example, um, I think is trying to work on something like that um, for flare-ups. Um, but, you know, Lodamax, and, and if you caught the new uh, balance insert on um, the abdominal drug guide, was when they talk about dry treatment, they don't even mention the dry drugs. It just mentions Lodamax for everybody. Um, so the problem, I mean, I, I do. Thomas? Yes, uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, right. I think, yeah, as much as I respect them, I think that's a mistake. Well, I agree. I mean, it's well sponsored, and I, I think a lot of doctors don't quite understand that. But I love Lodamax. I think it's a great. You know, steroids are amazing. I, I like them short term. I don't like them long term. You know, you can talk about safety profile and soft steroid and all that, but I've seen pressure spikes uh, on Lodamax, and you really, you know, the object. What we're trying to do when we treat a patient for dry eye disease or ocular surface disease is to return homeostasis to the entire environment. 
And you're doing such broad, you know, we're targeting that specifically with restasis and Zydra targeting parts of that pathway versus this broad uh, immune suppression that goes on with the steroid. So I I like them short term. I just don't like them long term. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I, uh, I agree. I think if we... You know, ideally, we can put patients on it in the short term, and it and it kind of cleans things up and gives us a better surface to start from. I do have a couple patients. I mean, a handful of patients that it's it is magic for them. They they failed on Zydra, they failed on Restasis, um, and you know, BID dosing keeps their symptoms at bay, keeps their ocular surface looking way better. And for those patients, um, you know, as long as I have for me, you know, from a comfort, from a malpractice standpoint, and from a medical legal standpoint. Um, at least in the chart, I have, you know, we, they, they failed restasis or they, it was too expensive for them or whatever the reason. And then we just, we follow them like a glaucoma suspect. So we watch, you know, we, we, uh, we keep that dosing as low as we can. We keep the softest steroid that they can afford. And, um, and then we, we watch them like a glaucoma suspect and that seems to work. Okay. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I've got, I've got the same thing going in my practice where, you know, there's just really nothing else that controls the inflammation as well. Um, and who knows what we're dealing with? You know, just the simple term dry eye, I think is, is really, someday it will be renamed something else. I don't think MGD covers it all. I don't think dry eye covers it all. Ocular surface disease is pretty broad. But even just the term dry eye is confusing. You've got patients who are complaining about watery eyes. And, and it's, you know, then you tell them they have a dry eye and that, and that doesn't always go over very well. Oh, you know, you've got to explain what's going on here. So to me, it's sort of more of a concept of awareness of your eyes. Do you feel your eyes in your head? You shouldn't really feel them. And I think these patients feel their eyes, and sometimes it, it manifests itself with itching or gritty or sometimes pain. Uh, but it's uh, someday, I think, we'll, we're just the tip of the iceberg with all this stuff. Yeah, it is interesting. I mean. Um... Just to think back, I was explaining this to a patient the other day. She was just asking me questions about, about you know, the evolution of, of dry eye and my bone gland dysfunction understanding. And, um, and last week I had a conversation with Brian Regan and Carolyn um, Blackie. And, um, and, you know, just kind of thinking through in, you know, when I was in school, when I graduated in 2008, um, we just weren't thinking about my gland dysfunction. You know, you thought it was uh, posterior blephritis and you could see that from across the room and it was the same thing as, you know, acne rosacea or ocular rosacea. It's all the same thing. And, um, and you know, I, I, my fourth year, I, I tell this story, I won't tell it again, but, you know, I had this epiphany like you had and it, it just sort of opened my mind to all of this stuff that um, was just kind of life-changing for, for my practice, uh, for my future practice, I guess. And, um, and to think that, you know, in, in 12 years from 2007 to 2019, how much that has shifted, you know, our understanding of, of the role that meibomian glands play in the ocular surface. Just think of the next 12 years. What do you think, what do you think Scott, is, um, you know, kind of the, uh, in, in your mind, when you, because th- certainly you get approached by a lot of people in industry talking about new things. Um, and you're, you're kind of keeping your nose to the ground with, um, you know, keeping your ear to the ground with new research. What do you think, if you, if you look at all those things, I'm not trying to make you a sage or an oracle, but, but in your mind, what's the next thing that's on the horizon that nobody's thinking about right now from an ocular surface standpoint? Well, I, you know, my, my thinking about this whole thing is this is really, there are local reasons for your eyes feeling the way they do. Yeah but they probably manifest themselves somehow systemically. Their origins may be in something systemic. Hmm. Um, and so maybe, um, you know, something just came out, an article just came out the other day about a, a microbiome of the ocular surface yes. and looking at, uh, you know, some of the bacteria that are on the surface of the eye are actually responsible for uh, fending off uh, other bacteria that don't belong and and that's why if we go after it with antibacterials, for example, we may be, you know, wiping out flora we don't want to wipe out. But when you start thinking about, you know, think about 23andMe and how the genetic testing is going and, um, 
you know, I think there may be potentials for genetic therapies down the road, um, way down the road, probably. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, it's when you look at when you look at the players that are in the game right now. So I don't know if you know today, but Allergan is just um, trying to be bought. No, I didn't see that. Did, did you know that? Yeah, a company called AB, ABB VIE, something like a, I think it's a sixty or eighty billion dollar deal, where these two companies that have been struggling for innovation of late are going to combine forces and. And and um, on top of that, we have Novartis, mm-hmm. huge global pharma company, uh, buying um, Zydra and the Zydra team, the ophthalmic business unit from Takeda. So we're seeing big, big pharma get into recognizing the ubiquity and the growing prevalence of dry eye disease in our society, probably driven by, in large part, device use. Can't say for sure, but mm-hmm. it sure looks that way. So they see this opportunity, and so I think you've, there will be more. There will be more superficial treatments offered, but but I think somehow systemically we're going to come up with a way to manage that better. How do you think? So do you think you know everybody um, kind of blames device use, and I, I I agree. I think that's part of of the component, but um, you know it, it's so it's so challenging because I mean, certainly you see people who take good care of themselves will still have bad dry eye. And to the extent that, um, you know, that that is a player, it, it, um, it has to be something else, right? If it's systemic, you know, they're, they're cardiovascularly, they're eating right, they're working out. I mean, certainly in your patient population, you would, I would assume that you see that. Correct. Well, yeah. And certainly we see, we see patients who, look as fit as can be who are vegetarians who struggle yeah. with their cholesterol, for example, right? Yeah. So just genetic predisposition is some kind of trigger. Uh, they're fighting genetics maybe. Um, so, yeah, I think, I think there's a lot of play. I mean, I, I really think so much of what goes on in the world is based on genetics, and then there's some environmental aspect to that. Uh, you know, what, what are the, how's the environment shaping your genetics, for example? And, you know, I'll try not to make this too long winded. Um, but I was, I was adopted the same day I was born and I grew up with my brother who was my parents' natural child, uh, four months younger than me. We could not be more different. We could not be more different, uh, in every, every aspect we could not be more different. Uh, you know, he's great and we get along and all that, but he's, we're just very, to see us, our behaviors, our mannerisms, all that, we're very different. I came across my birth family about uh, 10, about 15, 16 years ago. They ended up, my parents ended up getting married and they had three kids. So I have three full siblings in Eastern Canada. I grew up in Southern California. They are from Montreal. I met them 15, 16 years ago. My three siblings and I are the same. Hmm. We move our hands the same. We talk. We walk the same. We think it's it's mind blowing. Hmm. So, not to my long way of saying, I think genetics has so much to do with everything that goes on. Genetic predispositions that are molded by environment, and and I think that has a lot to do with it. So we're way off the topic because because this is actually really interesting to me. What so um, do you maintain a relationship with them right now? I do, I do. It's hard to. I mean, I've got four kids and uh, and they're about as far away from me as they yeah. could be uh, from Southern California to you know the Northeast. Um, but yeah, we we check in. I see them once in a while. I'm speaking at the uh, uh, Toronto. Um, Dry Summit by Richard Maharaj in November, and uh, my brother's a cop in Toronto, and I'll, I'll get up that way and I'll visit them. Do you um, so? Do you mind getting into the story a little bit about how your parents decided to to put you up for adoption? Well, they were very so they were seventeen. They were young. Wow. Uh, yeah, they're, they're very young and and not ready. And um, my mom had a friend who'd moved to Southern California, so she didn't tell anybody and went to Southern California, lived there for the summer, had me and then went back home. And, wow. Um, 
Yeah. And then never told anybody, but ended up marrying my dad and then had the three more kids. So did they reach back out to you or did, did you? No, no, I did. I did. My, my youngest daughter had a chance at cystic fibrosis and, uh, on her amniocentesis. And that's why I started to try to look and, uh, to get my medical history. And so I kind of started shaking the trees and actually it was, I found the name of the people who I had a birth certificate. So I had an address that she lived at and, uh, did a title search on the property in the year I was born and found Alta Vista was my search engine back then. And, and three names and the three people with this name came up in the entire country. It was a, a unique name like Krushlinski or something. That's the people who own the house. The first number I called was in Florida and it was them. They knew who my mom was. They knew where she went to high school. And I, and I found her on classmates.com. I, I started saying, Hey, I'm doing some genealogical research. And, and then, um, you know, uh, about, uh, six months later, you know, I knew I was getting close and, and I got this, um, email saying, I heard you're looking for me and you found me. And, uh, so we ended up from there, uh, getting to know each other. Were they happy? Were they excited that you found them or were they kind of, yeah, they were, they were, um, you know, very nervous to tell my siblings they had yeah. never told them. Oh my goodness. So, you know, and these were school teachers, they were school teachers. Um, high school math teacher. Amazing. I'll tell you, this is the coincidence. Both my dads were high school math teachers. Mm. I thought it was pretty funny. Um, and my mom was the first grade school teacher, but they uh, sat down and told, uh, my siblings about me and they've always treated me as long lost son, long lost brother. Wow. And and did, did you know growing up, you knew growing up that you were adopted? Well, yeah. Four months apart was one given. (laughs) Yeah. Um, you know, my parents, uh, and I'm about six, two, my parents, uh, my dad was five, two, my mom was five feet tall. Oh, wow. So that was, you know, another, another giveaway. Wow. Yeah. So they told me from the the beginning. Yeah. Well, so, um, so yeah, I mean that, you know, I think there's a lot more to unpack there, but that, that can be for another, another time. I, um, do you, so then that to kind of bring that back into, into play, um, you know, from a, from a genetic standpoint, do you think that there is, um, so obviously you're convinced that genetics is going to play a significant role in ocular surface. Um, and right now we're kind of caught up in the environmental role. Um, yeah, I think, I think we're just all, we, we do treat nutraceutically, right? We try to get at it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, would, and the dream study cast a lot of doubt on that, but I think a lot of us clinically see improvements with nutraceuticals. Yeah. What do you take? What maybe do you make we stick that? with it. Yeah. What do you make of that? Cause I'm the same, I'm in the same boat. Yeah. So the dream study, you know, and, uh, Dr. Penny Asbell, um, and I know Loretta Shaka was part of this too, people I respect a lot. And it was an interesting approach, which they tried to make it very real world. If you're on these drugs, it doesn't matter. That's okay. They tried to make it very real world, but it it resulted in a finding that was confusing for some people. And what what the study showed you was that omega or fish oil was no better than refined olive oil. Yeah. Right. And the group that the group that sells the fish oil will tell you they both worked because symptoms dropped in both signs got better in neither. Hmm. Um, and the people who did the study will tell you neither one worked. So, you know, I actually use um, something called Hydri, which you probably heard mm-hmm. heard of, which is actually, it's not official oil, something different. It's GLA, which has um, some pretty good anti-inflammatory properties and, and they've been published. And I like the fact that it's something a little uh, different than fish oil I, and fish oil. I think we all would agree it has systemic benefits for sure. Mm-hmm. And I know a lot of people who've, who stand by the fact that they think their patient size feel better with fish oil. So I think if you've got somebody successful on it, I would not take them off. If they're not on it, then you know, you, you got to kind of think that through and keep that in mind. But the study was not a perfect study. It had its, there were certainly a lot of detractors on the study design. Oh yeah. Yeah. So then, um, you know, there was, so I, I, since that study, honestly, um, I still use omega threes. I don't use them probably as much as I, um, as I used to. I mean, that study definitely made me maybe think about it. And, 
um, it is uh, kind of like you, where if they're already on it, then we stay on it. Um, if they weren't on it, you know, I, I will tell you that there was a study that was done, I think in 2017, and I, I don't know that it had a name, but they used, um, they used PRN. And one of the measures that they, that they looked at was they looked at MMP9 um, on patients who were on uh, the, I believe it was the dry eye formulation of PRN. And they mm-hmm. were, um, they were like, uh, 66% less likely to, to have positive MMP9 findings. And mm-hmm. it wasn't like a number needed to treat that was astronomical. It was like one in three. So you were treating three patients to get that benefit of, of negative MMP9 findings. So it wasn't, again, that wasn't a perfect study, but, um, but it was kind of compelling to see that it, that it was doing something for inflammation beyond just the intuitive um, thought of, of that it would be beneficial. How much? Yeah. Time? Yeah. I mean, you've got, you've got, I think it's important, you know, you bring up a good point about the research and, you know, I'm a big fan of, you know, following the science whenever you're looking at equipment, for example, or you're looking at a new product, a new device, a new drug, um, anything, I think it's important to ask for the research and look at uh, who funded it, what are the financial interests, commercial interests, what was the study design, what were the p-values, what was the n, how many people were in the study, uh, and read through. You can't always just read the headlines Yep. or the conclusions when you're looking at studies. And it's time-consuming, uh, yes. But but I think you can sort of stay abreast of that. And Google Scholar is a great resource for keeping up with what's the latest research that's going on. Um, I think that that's a great way. Just put a dry eye into Google Scholar and you'll come across. And you can, you can filter that by years published, for example, to mm-hmm. find the most recent data. Uh, you, you know, I'm not, I don't know if you do. Do you use MyBeflow? Uh, I know I don't. In your I practice, MyBeflow. Yeah, I mean, MyBeflow just got in some hot water, right? Yeah, tell me about that. Well, I think that they they were had some sort of inspections, and I I can't. Uh, anyone who's listening to this and wants to know more, I would Google it and read it. Uh, but I believe there were some inspections that took place by. Um, I don't know if it was the FDA, I think it was, and they didn't meet standards in terms of uh, standardiz- standardization of some of their, you know, what temperature is this device getting up to. Um, they, they're, in, they're in some trouble. Hmm. And, uh, you know, if I was um, using the device, I would be, I, I would take the time. If I'm lo- using the device or I'm looking at buying the device, I would inquire from the company and I would also research on my own, you know, if, if you, if a patient catches wind of these things and uh, wants to press some kind of lawsuit or something, and I, I don't know the implications, but I would say, uh, be, be cautious. But when you are, when you are, you know, that's the thing about these guys is they didn't put out, um, a lot of data or any data for that matter. Um, and when they tried to convince me, I should either, speak for them or try them. I said, show me your research, show me your research. And they couldn't do it. So, and I don't, I'm not here to knock them, uh, but I'm just saying buyer beware. And, you know, you mentioned Lipiflow, for example, and they have, boy, uh, quite, they have a ton of research. And I had one, one year in Orlando, I I had a poster at Arvo and I'll tell you, uh, Don Corbett, Karen Black, he had about 10 posters, uh, next to me. Um, with my little poster. <laughs> so they have certainly done the work. Um, same for Alcon and Site Science. They're, they're both uh, doing research currently to show their efficacy and safety. Yep. Uh, but I think that's very important. Uh, when you're looking at equipment, ask for the data. Yeah. I, I, and I think that's where, um, you know, that, that I do think that's where people can, can kind of get lost. For me, that, you know, I wouldn't say I was an early adopter with Lipiflow. We've only had it for three years, a little bit more than three years but it was the research that, that was compelling to me. I, I couldn't get out of the mindset of that it was going to be more effective at improving gland function than just uh, cold mastroda paddle expression. And, uh, mm-hmm. but, but I just continue to read the literature and continue to read not just their literature, but the literature that was published, um, you know, 
independently about the, the technology. And, um, and, and so that's what, that's what made was compelling to me. But I, then at the same time, like you're saying, I mean, um, I've been actually very leery of a lot of, a lot of the other stuff that has come down the pipe because that's the first question I ask is what does the evidence say? You know, how, how does it, how do you know whether or not this is any more beneficial than this or more beneficial than that? And I mean, kudos definitely to like, um, to ILUX. I mean, even, you know, the, I think there's a lot of value in, um, the meibomian gland evaluator that tier science developed, um, the little blue device that, that, uh, uh-huh. measures, um, a specific pressure, but, um, ILUX use that device to validate their, um, their, uh, their technology to, to show that it actually improves that measurement. Uh, which I think was smart because, because it's a standard now that's accepted in the literature. Um, right. So it takes time to do those, those types of studies. And, um, and I think a lot of times people get caught up in, okay, what's the cost of a disposable versus no disposable? What's the, what's the cost of the interest instrument? Um, and, and can I, can I make it pay and charge less or something like that? And I, which is valid. Those are valid um, things to be thinking about. But the real question you have to ask is, is it, you know, is it, is it really going to be effective at doing what I want it to do and probably more effective than kind of your base warm compress type of, of therapy? So then. Yeah, no, no doubt. It's important that the business model flies. But I think question number one is to show me the data. And if it looks good, then show me the business model. Yep. And, then, and then when you're talking to your patients, I mean, that's the thing getting your patients to comply with your treatment plan. So much of that depends on your own confidence and conviction that I know, I know this is the best thing for you. And you may or may not want to do it. You may or may not want to comply or spend the money or whatever it might be, but I'm just going to tell you, I know for a fact that this treatment is, I know your diagnosis and I know the treatment plan. I know what we need to do to get you to to do better. And that conviction will drive compliance. But that's from doing what you're saying, your due diligence when you're looking at a device or a drug, for example, know the data, you know, get familiar with that. A business model, great, but you know, you know, people used to talk about Clairdox and how, how, you know, patients don't like it, for example, yeah. you know, it's not tolerable. Well, water, they could tolerate water pretty well, but it's not gonna do anything. <laughs> So it's it's important to kind of balance all this stuff out uh, when you're when you're making these uh, decisions totally how to right. treat your patients. Totally right. So you brought ClearX up. I, I, I'm going to be respectful of your time, and I'll we'll wrap this up pretty quick. But you brought ClearX up, and um, so I I used to love uh, we loved ClearX Light. I mean, I bet I bet we sold more ClearX Light than probably anybody, uh, almost anybody. I mean, we, we just, I mean, we, I love that stuff. And, um, and the reason that we had it in our practice was because if I was sending patients online or to another place to get it, they would come back. And what do you think they'd tell me? They either found something else that wasn't the same. They were using baby shampoo or nah, I couldn't find it. It was too hard. And then they didn't, they didn't have it. So, so, but, but it was really effective for, for us to maintain, um, the, their patient lid margin, uh, debris. And, mm-hmm. uh, and I just felt like it was a horrible mistake when they moved away and said, it's only available online. Did you use much of mm-hmm. that? Uh, yeah. Uh, well, I don't know if you heard, but yeah, I did. They listened. Yeah. yeah <laughs> they're, so they're coming back. <laughs> why, do you think, why do you think these companies decide to do that? I mean, do you have any insight? Well, you know, my guess would be, I mean, BioTissue really is an amniotic membrane company. And, you know, that's a huge part of their focus. And so I think um, just to allow them to remain more focused on them. But I think they found a way since they, you know, credit to them, they made this decision, which everyone hated. Yeah. And they said, okay, we hear you. We're going we're gonna to do this. And I think... You know, I met with these guys at, in um, St. Louis last week, just about immediately after getting off of a, an unintentional red-eye flight where I slept about two hours. 
I remember most of our conversation, but not all of it. But I think the, the thing was that they found an easier distribution method to do this, and I don't recall it offhand. But I, I really just think their focus was on Procara and, and amniotic tissue, and um, they didn't realize how important it was to doctors yeah. to be able to get, their, get it in their patients' hands. Yeah. Well, and I think they, they made the right decision, um, even though it was, it was a few months, you know, after they made the initial decision, you know, you, uh, the first thing I thought of when they did that was they're going to, they're going to invite every, everybody and their mom to compete with that product, just like what happened with Avanova. And they're going to be whittled down to nothing in the marketplace, um, with, other right. <clears throat> And I think they recognize yeah, and that, and that happened. <laughs> that did happen. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what happened. So, um, all right. So, Scott, um, we're we're an hour deep. Uh, we I would love to go another hour, but um, I want to be respectful of your time. Um, so, tell so Scott Schachter, um, dry eye guru. I'm going to kind of build you up a little bit. Um, you're developing the Vision Source um, protocol for dry eye, and you also offer courses that people can take either in California, or if I understand correctly, you'll even come to their practices to, to hold um, some of these workshops to help them implement some of the tools that, that you use. So talk about that. Where can, where can people yeah. go to, to find that information? Well, yeah, I'll tell you briefly. The, um, so the Vision Source Drive Protocol, there is one in place. And so John Shackett and Crystal Brimer spent a lot of time working on something very comprehensive, did a great job with it. Um, and it exists on the Vision Source website for Vision Source members. And what I'm going to be doing is creating sort of a plan B or, you know, respectful of everything they've done uh, to offer for practices that don't have the time to do all the stuff that uh, all of the detailed workup that their um, protocol is, involves. I'm going to be developing a protocol where we just make it sort of easier um, versus having, say, a dry clinic, we're just going to say, this is how you make it part of what you're doing every single day and make it streamlined like we talked about. Get, get some parameters, make some quick decisions based on science, follow your patients back, et cetera. So that's what we'll be doing with Vision Source within the next year. <clears throat> um, and right, I have a, uh, so I love where I live. I travel a lot, but I like it where I live a lot. And uh, I live in kind of wine country, so we've got beaches and hiking and, and um, a lot of wineries and vineyards. A small group, uh, 10 doctors with 10 staff members, ideally. A uh, six-hour CE program where we do uh, two hours of CE and breakfast at the winery in the morning, which is about 10 minutes from my practice approximately. So we don't start drinking wine in the morning. That's key. We don't do that that early. There's a lot to do. So um, we spend two hours on CE, then we go back to my practice and do kind of hands-on workshop with four more hours of CE. Um, and the whole idea of it is to show you how do you go back to work on Monday and start doing better with this? And um, how, do you, how do you do this without having to make big investments? Or if you want to invest in something, we certainly have all the things there to try uh, you know, Tear Care, Ilux, Lipiflow, IPL, um, Peter Pham, an ophthalmologist in Houston, uh, who developed a product called Zaku Shield for lid hygiene and dry is going to be there. Um, and he has an in-office procedure kit that's a $25 kit. I love it. You know, my staff does this procedure and he's going to teach your staff how to do that procedure and present some education on that. Lisa Wall uh, teaches at SCCO. And uh, she's going to lecture on um, sclerals for dry eye. And then my staff is also going to work with the doctor staff to show them how do we talk to patients about dry eye and what's wrong with them and, and making these recommendations happen. If we need to schedule a Lipiflow, a, an Ilux, a, a, a tear care, how do we get that done? How do we, how do we educate our patients to communicate properly? In the words of Caroline Blackie, we educate. And we move on. We don't sell. We educate. We recommend, and we move on. And that's what we do. So we do all that, and then after after we finish up at the practice, we go to the winery for um, dinner under the stars, essentially, uh, with wine tasting and a winery tour. Um, I've got a guy at this Tolosa winery who's just awesome. Um, who uh, kind of he's, he's great at explaining all the different wines and um, 
we've only done this last July. We're doing this August 24th and October 5th and the website's ocularsurfaceacademy.com. Um, and that's what we do here. And awesome. it, and in terms of going to practices, I actually did a big program. Well, not a big program. I did a kind of a hands-on workshop, um, in Pennsylvania, King of Prussia, uh, there's about five doctors and 20 staff. I also had the opportunity to go to, you may know Jenny Drake in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. Um, mm-hmm. we did kind of a program there, um, which was some, boy, was she's sharp uh, young woman who bought a practice netting about $30,000 a year and fast forward 10 years. She was a full-time associate, um, uh, in a gangbusters practice in a new building. Um, I think her business, her biggest decision right now is she's building a grotto in her backyard <laughs> for her pool. And she, she boomed her, uh, I was certainly, she has a lot of that figured out, but we just absolutely helped her grow the dry side of her practice. And it was a lot of fun to do that. So I prefer to, I prefer to be at home if I can, but I only, I'm only doing a couple of those programs a year and, uh, it's just a lot of fun. I, it's, it's a really pretty area where I live. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds awesome. Sounds awesome. Well, Scott, thanks for being on tonight. I really appreciate it. It's been a lot of fun and um, maybe we could do this soon again. Yeah. Let's plan on it.